0: Welcome to another episode of Studies in Empathy, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring empathy and patient experience. I'm your host, Adrian Boise, Chief Experience Officer here at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm very pleased to have Dr. Susanna Rose here, who is the Associate Chief Experience Officer here at the Cleveland Clinic. Susanna, welcome to Studies in Empathy. Thank you very much, Adrian. So
1: that's a pretty big fancy title, but tell me a little bit more about your role. Well, my role is helping patients' voices be heard and i think that that's one of the most important things that we can do in healthcare and how that translates into people's experiences while they're in healthcare so i focus on doing research and on program evaluation and one thing that's important to that is how we understand what we're doing and how it works so when we are thinking of a new program or initiative or doing something different to help people's experiences in healthcare we need to know if it works or not and so the way I like to work is to hear people's voices themselves and to do systematic research and program evaluation. So we know that what we're doing actually makes a difference.
0: You know, research in the field of patient experience is relatively new, right? I think it's early in its growth. We used to just kind of do stuff and hope that it worked. So tell me a little bit about how you came in to research and a little bit more about your background that makes you a prime fit for this role.
1: Well, I started in my professional career as a clinical social worker, helping people with cancer cope with their illnesses. And I was a social worker for about almost 10 years at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. And one of the things that was really striking for me is that we did a lot of stuff to help patients and we just assumed that it was helping them. And so I got very interested in research and how we can systematically evaluate how things are going for patients. And so then I left and I went to Harvard and got a PhD and learned how to conduct very high quality research. And I now apply that to how we can hear patients' voices. And I know sometimes research sounds like a kind of dry topic and not no. too exciting. No, not at all. It sounds <laughs> amazingly but rich. But as you, as you know, Adrian, I get very excited about doing research. and And the reason why is that discovery of the unknown and also sometimes the discovery of findings that you're not ever quite sure you're going to find. And I think that comes up a lot in the field of research and patient experience because oftentimes doctors and other professional caregivers assume that they know what patients are thinking or feeling or wanting, but often those perceptions are mistaken. And so bringing up unexpected voices or unexpected perspectives is is really fun.
0: Yeah. Are there great studies out there that say, you know, if you ask doctors how often they thought patients were taking their medicine or what they wanted at end of life or yes, for right. surrogate decision-making that that we think we know, and yet we don't really.
1: Right. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So there's a, quite a bit of research, uh, especially over the last few decades, on truth telling, for example, with patients. Um, so in cancer, for example, there used to be a conspiracy of silence and we wouldn't even tell people that they had cancer. Often it was h- hush hush and often in the back rooms and you know, sometimes discussed with family members. But what we've learned over time is that that often created even more fear and uh, distance from the patient from everybody else who knew the truth and they had to keep that secret. And so now with most people, they actually do want to know the truth and I think that dialogue between people has helped not only patients who have cancer and other very serious illnesses be more engaged with their health care, but also feel more connected to the professional caregivers and to their family members.
0: So I can certainly attest that you are one of the most excitable people I have ever met about research. <laughs> <laughs> and we're just really blessed to have you in the Office of Patient Experience leading this work. Well, thank so. you, Adrian. Thank you for everything you've done. So you alluded to a little bit prior work with cancer patients. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you think that's shaped you and your approach to this role?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Working in oncology for so many years helped me understand that everybody gets cancer. It hits the rich, the poor, um, people from the United States, from outside of the United States, from people from all religions. And I think that one of the most important things I learned was that everybody hears and feels that diagnosis differently. And that feeling is often overwhelming, especially at the time of diagnosis or at other pivotal points in the cancer's trajectory. And what that means is that as a person witnessing that, I learned to have to be present for those emotions. Because if I wasn't present for those emotions, then other people around me also were looking at me to have that connection with people. And if I had turned away, then that would have isolated the patient even more. So there was one example of a young woman who she, I think she was almost maybe turning 19, and she had metastatic ovarian cancer, which, as you know, is a very unusual diagnosis for a person so young. And her family knew she was dying, and she knew she was dying, but they weren't coming together to talk about that. And so she would talk to me privately about her fears, but she was worried about burdening her family. And so She asked me to bring them together to talk about her death and what that did was make us all present. We all cried in that moment when she was talking about the fact that she knew she was going to die in the next few days and her family members were so sad. But they also were so happy to have had that moment. And they asked me to be present during her death process to help them all sort of pull together at this very touching and emotional time for all of them. But in a way that I could help all of us be present and not be overwhelmed by all of that. Mm-hmm. I think that's some of the most important things that I could have contributed during those moments. You should have warned me you were going to tell that story. <laughs> I have a lot of them, Adrian.
0: <laughs> So couple things you said resonate, you said everybody gets cancer. Yeah. That that kind of hit me in the chest when you said it. Yeah, what, what does that mean? In your
1: lens? Well, I think what I mean by that is that we tend to think that only certain people sometimes get certain diagnoses. And I think this is perpetuated by our culture that, you know, even sometimes when people get sick, they blame themselves oftentimes. You know, particularly there are, sometimes there are causes, such as maybe smoking and things like this. But many times we do not know the cause for anybody's illness. And so it's important to know that all of us can empathize in this sense because we can all be part of being part of an illness. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not the only thing that a person is. Um, so you you have whatever people brought with them into the walls of that cancer hospital, they are that person still. And often that is overlooked once they assume the suit of cancer or of MS or of heart disease. And I think one of the most important things that's lost sometimes is that identity of who people are before, quote, quote, they have cancer or heart disease. Yeah,
0: so I I love this track of conversation. The thing it that statement, everyone gets cancer made me think about was also this idea that there's probably very few of us in the world who don't know someone, or love someone or have cared for someone or known somebody who has had cancer. And so to me, it also sort of meant we're all touched by it, and often touched by it repeatedly over the course of our lifetime. And in different ways. And some of what I'm hearing you also talk about is this concept of identity, right, that people have the disease, they aren't the disease, necessarily. I hear a lot about that in multiple sclerosis, in my world, that sometimes it becomes all consuming. And even survivorship can be that way, right? Mm -hmm. In order to be a survivor, you have to wear pink and, and for some people that may be an appropriate identity to take on, but not for all. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You are a I would say a renowned expert in conflicts of interest research. You've published some nice pieces of work in JAMA and other places around conflicts of interest and also what we've learned about patient advocacy groups. So talk to me a
1: little bit about that piece of your work. Yeah, so as healthcare and uh, many industries move forward, a lot of innovations occur with partnerships between for-profit hospitals, non-for-profit patient advocacy groups, um, such as American Cancer Society or American Heart Association or many, many others and also what we call industry, or in other words, for-profit corporations. And some people refer to these partnerships as very innovative and can be amazing in terms of what they can bring um, in terms of innovations, of treatment, and many other exciting things. And often things you can never have one of those organizations do on their own. However, we have to be aware that financial relationships with other companies can also sometimes shade people's missions and what they want to accomplish. And so the idea here is that conflicts of interest occur everywhere and all of us are susceptible to conflicts of interest. And so one thing I want to mention is that this is not necessarily mean that somebody did something bad or an organization is bad in some way. In fact, as I said, it could be quite awesome and good, but we also need to make sure that the patients are being served. So conflicts of interest can increase the likelihood sometimes that people lose focus of that mission and may increase the risk of harm to patients or to research participants. And we need to make sure that people stay true to their missions. And so as you mentioned, one of my research topics has been how industry partners with patient advocacy groups. And patient advocacy groups are so important uh, in American healthcare because they are often the ones raising the voice of the patient in a very powerful and often organized way, such as lobbying for new and innovative drugs and treatments, um, providing Uh, financial support to patients to be able to go to chemotherapy, for example. I mean, they, they, they provide so many amazing benefits. But there were several articles written in the media about concerns that those organizations may be too aligned with industry interests. And so I've done some research on how patient advocacy groups can stay true to their missions and help the patient's voice be heard in an unencumbered way.
0: That's fantastic. Thanks for bringing it to the national attention. I know it's got a lot of attention, especially recently. I know when we had patient advisory groups, we talked to them about what they would want to know about their clinician's conflict of interest. And of course, it was one of those interesting ideas where the patient said they wanted to know everything. And we thought there was some monetary limit, as though the only conflict is financial, that they would need to know. So that inherent disconnect uh, played out. You have also done some work in both wait times and virtual care. I just want you to comment. I know we can't dive into it deeply in this conversation, but we were exploring why people wait. Can you dazzle our audience or just tease them a little bit with some forthcoming information about what we learned there?
1: Yeah. So one of the most exciting projects I've uh, completed just in the last few months is an assessment of patients' perceptions of how long they have to wait to get their surgeries. And so we conducted a study with uh, hundreds of patients here at the Cleveland Clinic receiving all types of surgeries. And we spoke with them and surveyed them about what they thought about that, what they thought about the scheduling process, you know, what they thought about how long they have to wait. And one surprising finding is that. Patients do have to wait quite a bit of time for many of their surgeries, sometimes up to four months. Obviously, those are not urgent surgeries, or we would have provided the opportunity earlier. But, but what's interesting, though, is that patients generally were not dissatisfied with this wait time. So there are some patients who absolutely were dissatisfied. We want to put those aside. But in general, people thought that even four months was okay for them. And why I think this is important is to really drive home points is that A, this reflects again, what I'm saying before about sometimes professional caregivers assume that there's a problem from patients' perspectives, when perhaps there's not. And so we need to listen to people about what they think about these things before we drive a lot of resources towards fixing a problem that may not actually be a problem, but might accurately reflect people's preferences. Many of our patients said that they delayed their own surgeries because they wanted to attend a wedding or go on a vacation, or things that were valuable to them. I think the second point to this, though, is that we might not want to fully believe those results in the following way. Our healthcare systems are not working for our patients, and often our patients are used to waiting for many, many weeks and even months. And I'm talking the entire United States. And so if we are setting those expectations for patients and then we ask them if it's okay, they are probably gonna say it's okay. So one thing I'm curious about is if we actually do try to drive down wait times for patients, if the goal post essentially gets moved and people's expectations might actually increase and then we need to follow along with what they really want in terms of their value systems.
0: Yeah, so that leads me, you know, here, I remember Toby Cosgrove, our prior CEO, had heard a story about somebody waiting too long to get care and then immediately uh, rolled out same day access across Mm -hmm. the enterprise. So it's interesting to imagine that for some people that may not work and that's also okay with them. Yes. In my dreams, we will eliminate the weight one day. Yeah. Speaking of eliminating the weight, you've also done some work around virtual care and virtual visits, which we've been talking about, trying to get the patient experience community more engaged in. Talk to me about what it is. There's broad definitions around what virtual care is or distance care. Talk to me about what that means to you and some of the work you've done in that space.
1: Sure. So. My research in virtual care is some of the most interesting for me personally, and See, I, get, I, I told you I, <laughs> she's interested in everything. <laughs> so I, I can tell you why it's so interesting in a minute. Let me tell you what it is first. So, virtual care is a very wide term. At, describes many different aspects of essentially the incorporation of technology into healthcare. So, you know, you can even think of the telephone technically as virtual care, but I tend to think of it more, a little bit more high tech um, in terms of monitoring systems of patients while they're in the hospital, not with people literally right next to them, but perhaps downstairs in a basement or in another room where a lot of people can be monitored at once and we can detect problems more quickly by trained personnel. Another more obvious example of virtual care is when people use an app on their computer and it's almost like a in-person doctor or nurse practitioner visit where they see their practitioner On the other line just like using facetime or skype or one of those other mechanisms and you see and talk to the person and get medical care through a virtual health encounter and the opportunity came to me of of researching this and i thought you know let me guess you took it yeah i did (laughs) because i thought it was interesting because i thought to myself who in their right mind would actually think that this virtual care is satisfying or is a good way to get care. Um, I I was, to be honest with you, a bit biased against it. But that makes for a good researcher, right? Because a good researcher wants to basically interrogate her own ideas and to see what about her own perceptions may be accurate or not. A bad researcher is one who just wants to perpetuate their own view of the world when use data to do that. And so we've surveyed hundreds of patients and spoke with them about their virtual encounter visits after they had had one here at the Cleveland Clinic. And amazingly, patients loved it. And they not only loved it, over half of them said that they liked it better than in-person encounters with their providers. What? I know. So it was it was kind of nutty to me and I have to admit I had never used virtual care before this, but after that, I started using it Uh, whenever I needed to have access to a medical professional, and and including for my kids. And I have felt that it really not only transformed my own perception using these data and these analyses, but I hope that other people in other healthcare systems will see these data and understand that not only could this enhance access to medical care, but also might be a preferred method for healthcare delivery for many patients. And one thing I want to make sure is that a lot of people assume that virtual care is for those early adopters, those young people who are tech savvy and one thing i want to emphasize is that it can also be used for people who have motility disorders who live in rural areas who might not be able to come access care as easily or even for chronic conditions it might be able to reduce the number of physical visits that people have to have in order to get the best health care that they possibly can
0: and isn't it really the most empathic thing right if you imagine i again it's all about my patients. But, you know, I imagine my MS patients coming on a rollator or walker or having to get a bus ride, and then riding in and sitting in Cleveland traffic, parking, walking through the icy parking lot, you know, it probably takes hours for them to coordinate this. And so in some sense, it feels to me like the most empathic thing is to truly meet them where they are with this technology. And it sounds like you agree.
1: I do agree. And I tend to think of this, and you and I have talked about this before, and and how we can provide organizational empathy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, empathy we often think of as two individuals or a group of people together. But organizations are groups of people. And I think that is crucial to understand then that when people are interacting with the Cleveland Clinic, for example, they think of us as people, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they think of us as as an organization. And we can even be thought of either as a, an organization that is empathetic, or we can be thought of as an organization that doesn't care as much. And I think that all organizations in healthcare need to keep this in mind, that access is something that provides an indication of empathy, that an mm-hmm. organization cares because they will provide care to you when you need it. Now you're talking my language. I had a feeling. <laughs> Uh, Just a quick comment about virtual care. Do people
0: really connect over these virtual interfaces? I mean, doesn't that just sort of water down the ability to connect as humans? Has that been your experience? And if it has or
1: hasn't, why? What makes a difference? So one of the biggest predictors of not having an empathetic experience are the technological issues. So when people have technology, at your, and I'm sure you know this, when you get a drop call and or you can't hear people, it disrupts the relationship and the empathetic connection that you can have with people. However, I would say that over 85% of the people in our study said that they felt like they were cared for as a person and that they did have a relationship with that virtual provider on the other side of of that connection. And also, although providers were not part of my official research, I have talked to many of them, and many of them say that they feel that they can have a better connection with people because they are only focused on that individual at that time on that line. Mm. And there's something sort of very unique and, and wonderful about empathy that can be provided through technology.
0: Yeah, that they can feel it through, no matter what the device, they feel it regardless of the modality through which they're connecting. All right. Well, we're close to wrapping up. I wanted to ask you a throwdown challenge question, which is really around what do you think we need to do to build better experiences for our patients, maybe now, but into the future?
1: I think the most important thing is that we need to think about patient experience in terms of personalized patient experience. So organizations have to think about systems. We have to think about efficiencies, and we have to think about groups and populations of people. And that is a prime directive of many healthcare organizations. However, we cannot let the person get lost in those efficiencies. Mm -hmm. And we have to not only hear what people need, but we have to be able to allow for individual variances and not just allow it for when people tell us something, but we need to be able to anticipate it. And in order to anticipate it, we need to engage with people, with our patients, with our family members, and with our professional caregivers. So that way we know as an organization how we can utilize that system, that wonderful system, but to the individual's best interests. Love that.
0: Well, Susanna, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time and insights. This concludes Studies in Empathy podcast. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, my.clevelandclinic.org podcasts. Subscribe to Studies in Empathy podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.